I work primarily with our middle and high school students and their families. And so whenever I get to share uh, in this setting, I always like to try and give some insight into what it's like to be in the youth group, in the youth ministry. One thing that we do every Sunday morning before our Bible classes get started is we answer a weird question. So, you know, we'll pose an odd question, we'll all go around, say our name, and answer it. It usually allows for some funny answers, and, you know, some of us start off moving pretty slow on a Sunday morning, so it gets our brains going. I think, you know, maybe the biggest benefit is it really, I think it helps us get to know each other a little bit better, express ourselves some more. And so this morning, I wanted to share that experience with you, okay? Now, back in the spring, we did, listen, we do weird questions, okay? And back in the spring, we did seven weeks of pigeon-related questions in a row. It was our pigeon series. Um, and so this morning, here's one of those questions, and it's this. It is, would you rather have a pigeon beak, pigeon eyes, or pigeon feet, okay? Now, we can't all go around and share one at a time, so we're about to put 30 seconds on the clock here in just a second, and during that 30 seconds, I want you to share your answer to this with the people around you, okay? Pigeon eyes, pigeon beak, or pigeon feet. We've got 30 seconds to go. This is your time. All right, your time is up. I'm sorry. Uh, Don't worry, though. You can continue these conversations after our service today, if they're important to you. I I did a quick poll, and it... I heard some feet. I heard more eyes. I got no beaks. Do we have any beaks out there? Well, we got a few beaks. Okay. I think that's an odd choice, but that's all right. Okay. Uh, All right. I I have a story about another question this morning that I'd like to share. Uh, And this is an Ethan Williams story. So Ethan's here. He's singing on praise team. I did ask him if I could share this. Now, look, Ethan is all grown up now, but years ago, Ethan was a sixth grader in the youth ministry. And one Sunday morning in class, we were talking about sharing our faith. So our students were discussing that. And Ethan, confident in his 11 years of life, he raised his hand with a great question. He said, what do you do if you're at the lunch table, you're trying to share your faith, and your friend says, well, I'm an atheist, or, well, I'm a nun. <laughs> now, look, I had no idea how many sixth graders were joining the sisterhood, right? <laughs> uh, and... <laughs> I appreciate Ethan letting me share that story because there really is something sweet and often funny about the questions that kids have about God and faith. I did a little looking around and I found some letters that were written to God by children. I want to share a few of them with you. Here's the first one. Dear God, did you mean for giraffe to look like that or was it on accident? It's a fair question. How about this one? Dear God, I went to this wedding and they kissed right in church. Is that okay? And then, dear God, did you really mean do unto others that they do unto you? Because if you did, then I'm going to fix my brother, all right? (laughs) And if you spent time around children, then you know how charming and disarming, sometimes alarming, their questions can be. There is a podcast that I occasionally listen to. It's called This American Life. Several years ago, I came across a story there about a girl and her questions, And I would like to share a short two-minute clip with you from that story. So we're going to play the audio. Act three, Rosie's Paradox. So we end our show today with the story of one more person 
asking some very big questions. Stephanie Fu explains. About three years ago, my friend Matt's older daughter went through one of those hardcore phases where she got really into asking her dad a lot of questions. She was nine. There's the why phase. Um, and then the why phase can turn into the why not and explain and that endless string of questions. And uh, like, why can't I have my own room? How do I get to school? You know, why can't we have a yard? Can I have a cookie? They're unrelenting. So one night, Matt was working from home and Rosie was bugging him with her questions. And, and you know, it was just sort of one after the other after the other. And I was like, all right, look, you know, you, know, you got to just, just give me a minute. I'm working right now. Just go off and write them all down, right? Like, make me a list of the questions that you want me to answer, and I'll answer them for you. I thought it was going to be, like, three or four questions and then, like, a, you know, like a picture of a rabbit or something. And, you know, I get this list, and I look at it, and, you know, these are, like, the essential unanswerable questions of life. Read a few of these questions for me. We start at the very top. Okay, so... What is life? Why? That's the first question. That's the first question. It's the first thing she wants to know. <laughs> um, where do we go when we die? Heaven. Explain. Another planet. Is heaven another planet? Uh, why is there heaven or hell? Time. Why? Explain. <laughs> do we make worlds? Do we become like God? Why? Why do you do what you do? How do you know what's true? Who do you miss? Why? Explain. Do you miss anyone more than them? And does that change? And how? And if that changes, was it worth missing them in the first place? Uh, and, you know, my favorite is, and this is pretty much just, like, you know, my jaw dropped. Why any of this? Time. Explain. Why. Man, <laughs> that's a good one, right? There are, there are some deep questions there. And my guess is that as he read his daughter's questions out to you, it may have stirred something within you, because maybe you share some of those same questions, maybe not, but certainly somewhere in your life you have questions, right? Questions about life, about God, about people. Why is there suffering or why is there punishment? What about people who don't hear Jesus? What if I'd grown up somewhere else and been taught something else? And, you know, maybe those questions are new to you, or maybe you reconciled them and made sense of them long ago. But I think it's true that, that most of us, at some point, we encounter hard and challenging questions about God and us and people and why. And when you talk about big, challenging questions, there's a book of the Bible you cannot avoid. It is the book of Job that Keith read from earlier. And if you're familiar with the book of Job, you know that the first several chapters here, they really set the scene for the bulk of this large book to deal with a big question. First, we are introduced to our main character, Job, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And we're given a pretty clear picture of who Job is. First, Job is a man of great moral integrity, right? He fears God. He turns away from evil. He is regularly offering sacrifices to God on the off chance that his children have sinned. The words used to describe him are blameless and upright. He is a good man. He's a man that God is particularly pleased with, as we'll come to see. And the second thing about Job is that Job is prosperous, all right? And in more ways than one, yes, Job is wealthy. He has vast numbers of animals and employees, uh, but he's also rich in family, 
He has 10 children. They regularly get together and eat meals together. And all this to the point that in his place and time, no one else really compares to Job. Verse 3 tells us he was the greatest of all the people of the East. And things are really, really good for Job until verse 6. And here, it's really incredible. The scene shifts, and we find ourselves in God's throne room where he's holding court. It's, it's an image that portrays God ruling over his creation. And there are these heavenly beings presenting themselves before God. And also, there is the Satan. And moments like this in the Bible, they're so fascinating, so rarely do we get these glimpses behind the curtain like this. Now, the word Satan, it's a Hebrew word. It means accuser or adversary or prosecutor. You know, people have different opinions on who the Satan is here. It may be this is Satan, right? As in the being that opposes God and his people. But the word is sometimes used in a more general sense as well. If you look at Numbers 22, for example, uh, you have Balaam and his donkey. uh, They're riding along. And the angel of the Lord blocks Balaam from going where he's going. And that angel is called a Satan, regardless of the identity of this, this person, this accuser shows up and God brings up Job. He says, have you noticed Job? He's blameless and upright. And the accuser responds with a challenge. And it's not just a challenge about Job. You see, the accuser responds with a challenge about the way God runs the world. He says, well, of course he is. Job is righteous because you reward him. Take that away, let him suffer, and then watch. See what happens. He'll curse your name. And the challenge is that Job is only blameless because God has rewarded him with prosperity. It's a purely transactional relationship. And so this accuser says that there really isn't anything remarkable about Job because of how God has chosen to operate. And God consents to the challenge. And over the course of the next 20 verses, Job is going to lose everything, everything. His animals, his servants, his children, they die, all of them, within moments of one another. Some to natural disaster, others to human evil. And when Job still doesn't curse God, Satan takes his health. And by the end of chapter 2, the greatest man of the East is reduced to nothing. He sits alone, he's covered in ashes, he's scraping away at the boils on his skin with broken pottery. And in this moment, Job has a question. I'm going to read from chapter 3, verses 20 through 26. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me. What I dread befalls me. I'm not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Why? That's Job's question. Why am I suffering? Why is this happening? And there are some deeper questions that lie underneath that why. Is God just? Does he run the world according to justice? And at this point in Job, we are only three chapters in to a 42-chapter book. And the book of Job, it set us up to do this deep dive into the question of suffering and God's justice and to explore what the answers to those questions are. 
But before we get deeper into it, uh, I'd like to go back for a moment to that girl and, and her list of questions for her dad. I want us to check back in on them and see just how he handles the answers to her big questions. So let me play that clip. I mean, my first reaction to them is, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm proud of her. Uh, and then I realize I actually have to answer these questions, right? They're about three pages, single-spaced, of handwritten questions. About 50 questions total. But a promise was a promise, so Matt got to work. He's a professor at West Point, teaches writing. And so he took a professorial approach to it and started researching answers for her, looking up quotes on each topic, spending weeks, sometimes months, writing each answer. Like, what's the shortest and what's the longest you've ever spent? And what's the hardest one? So I think the longest one is one that I haven't finished answering for her yet, which is, what is love? What's been the easiest one to answer so far? Is, is heaven another planet? No. I got him to read me one of the answers he worked hardest on. The answer to time. Why? Explain. Could you read it for me? Sure. Um... So tell me what and tell me why, and the burden is on me to justify this to you. Perhaps that's what time means in the end, is justification or a lack of being justified. And I don't really know what justification means. There was an old movie I saw when I was a kid in your grandmother's house. With the he big quotes Camus, the then brings in the Millennium Falcon, then St. Augustine, then Kierkegaard. Rosie was nine. All his answers are like this. Kierkegaard gets to this point after either oaring everything. He says, why did I not die as a baby? I'm a grown-up, and I find it impossible to follow your answers. Like, I have, I honestly, I have not any idea what you're saying. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I really don't understand half of what I just said either, right, (laughs) to be honest. What his answers do have going for them is sincerity. The time when ends like this. In one of my favorite stories by a guy named William Faulkner, there's a daddy who gives his kid a watch and says, I give you this watch, not that you might remember time, but so that you might forget it for a little while. I can only tell you that time is me turning and turning (laughs) while the world is turning around a star that turns around a center that turns around the whole time among all the other things and little turning animals on all the little turning worlds. There's me trying to turn to you. Okay, and you just told her this answer like this? Yeah. And she... I mean, she would kind of pass in and out of of being interested in it. Um, You know, and at the end of it, she's just kind of like, oh, yeah, okay. And I'm like, all right, well, I mean, do you see what I'm saying about time is, you know, like it's a measurement of change, it's an arbitrary human construct, but not, but it feels different, right? So there's phenomena. She's like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. What, what do you think of his answers? Are they, are they helpful? Are they even answers? You know, I, I do kind of love what he says about time there at the end. Time is me turning and turning while the world is turning around a star that turns around a center, that turns around the whole of time among all the other things, the little turning animals on all the little turning worlds. And there is me trying to turn to you. I think that's beautiful. I don't know that it's an answer, though. 
In fact, you know, I, I get the distinct impression that most of his answers aren't going to be very helpful to his nine-year-old daughter, Rosie. And in that, I think Rosie has something in common with Job, because Job has some friends as well, and they have answers, answers that aren't going to be helpful. These three friends of Job, they show up, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and they show up in Job's time of suffering, and and they're there because they care. Chapter 3 tells us they come to show sympathy and bring comfort. When they see how much pain he is in, they weep. They sit with him in silence for a week. It's this beautiful picture of solidarity and suffering. But things start to change when everyone opens their mouths. Over the next 25 chapters, an argument, a debate, is going to rage between Job and his three friends. And it's all about that big question, why is Job suffering? Is God truly just? And to Job's friends, the answer, while perhaps a bit hard to swallow, is easy to see. And chapter 22 actually gives us a good overview of their thinking. I'm going to look at verses 3, 4, and 5 of chapter 22 when Eliphaz says this, Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? Is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There's no end to your iniquities. And then Eliphaz, he goes on to name a list of evils that undoubtedly Job must have committed for him to suffer like this. And he picks back up in verse 21 by saying, Agree with God and be at peace, and thereby good will come to you. So here's the thinking of Job's friends, okay? God is just, which means he rules the world according to the principle of justice. Therefore, the only conclusion that makes sense is Job must have sinned. And it makes sense, right? I mean, how else can you explain what is happening to Job? But Job is going to push back. Job says, I am innocent, which means my suffering is not divine justice. And therefore, either God is unjust or he doesn't rule the world according to the principle of justice. And Job and his friends, they go back and forth over and over and over. Job asserts his innocence. His friends argue he can't be innocent or else this wouldn't have happened. Now, the crazy thing is that we know Job is right, at least in some ways, right? He's innocent, we're told. There in the beginning, the suffering is not in response to some sin he has committed. And so Job, he just can't, he cannot accept the explanations of his friends. And of course, this is, this is a quick summary of 25 chapters of intricate arguments and explanations. And Job, throughout it all, he's on this ultimate emotional roller coaster. He's trying to wrestle with what he's lost and why it's happened. He's acknowledging God's power, but unable to understand why he uses it as he does. And finally, in chapter 31, Job says, enough, enough. I'm not interested in what you three have to say anymore. I know I'm innocent. And then listen to his words in verse 35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. I've given my defense. I've signed it. I'm willing to testify to it in court. I want God to explain himself. And then Job waits. He waits for an answer. While he waits, one last time, I want us to return to to Rosie and her dad hear the end of their story, and then we'll see the end of Job's. I was like, oh, well, this isn't really exactly what I wanted. That's not what you wanted because you were like, oh, this is kind of boring? 
Yeah. Rosie has a pixie cut and a cheeky grin. She gave her dad the 50 questions three years ago. She's 12 now. He's been working on getting her answers, but he's only gone through two-thirds of them because it takes him so long to cobble together a response. What I found out talking to Rosie is she didn't even really care about the answers to these questions. The questions that I thought that would take him a long time to answer because of the time I really just wanted to talk to him. It all started when she first moved to New York City. Before then, she'd been living with her mom and grandparents most of the week. But then her grandpa, who she was really close to, died, and she had to move in with her dad during the week instead. At the same time, she started at a new school where the kids either ignored or bullied her, and she felt lost. One day, she came home from school and decided she needed to do something about it. I was lonely, and I felt a little sad that nobody had really stepped out to say, oh, hey, it's going to be okay. I'll be your friend. So that's when I really, really need somebody to talk to. So you didn't have anybody to talk to at school? Uh, no. And then at home? No. That's really why I felt like, oh, this is my dad. He's a really important person. I love him very much. I really want to become closer with him. Like, I wish there was something that I could do to make us closer. Did you feel like your dad wasn't paying enough attention to you? Yeah, a little bit. Or, not a little bit, yeah. <laughs> what was he doing instead? Um, he was he was writing papers on his computer, and I knew at the time how important it was. But part of me still wished that I put down all the screens, put down everything else, and just talk. So I wrote all the questions down, and they were big questions because I know my dad... And if it's a little question, he'll elaborate on it and he'll make it a big deal. So if you times that by a big complex question, that would be a huge um, talk. Is it true that you weren't talking to her much at the time? No, I think I was talking to her all the time. Um, You know, I would tell her it was time to get up and go to school. I would tell her uh, that it was time to do her homework. I would tell her that she needed a new jacket. Yeah, I mean, I, I talk to you all the time. Maybe you're noticing the purely logistical nature of everything he mentioned. It certainly didn't get past Rosie. I talk to you all the time. Yeah, right? but it, to me, it's not really the same thing. Um, so conversation and talking are completely different things. Talking could be arranged from, oh, hey, what's up? And conversation is you're deep in thought and you're looking and you're making eye contact and you're really enjoying the presence of somebody else. I uh, I get a little sad when I hear Rosie's dad say uh, that he talked to her all the time, right? I mean, Rosie, Rosie kind of gets it. He's saying, get up for bed, do your homework. And his daughter, Rosie, she says, no, that's not what I mean. That's not what I want. Even in answering the questions, he didn't really give her what she was looking for because she wanted what? She just wanted to talk to him. And I think what's happening here with Rosie's dad is something that's easy for us to slip into. It's these relationships that are just transactional, where we boil down our connections with others to these simple, easy-to-understand rules. It's quid pro quo. I scratch your back. You scratch mine. 
I do the dishes, you take out the trash. That's our relationship. I compliment out, your outfit, you say something nice back to me. A parent might boil it down to, I, I, to their child, I provide you a home and food, you obey me, what's so hard to understand? Or you asked a question, I answered it, what more could you want? And to Rosie's father, answering the question, it satisfied the demands of the relationship. I gave you what you want. But Rosie didn't really want answers. What she wanted was her dad. She wanted to hear how he thought, what he cared about. She wanted him to talk to her and, and get to know her and ask her how she's doing and, and tell her after a bad day at school that it's, it's going to be okay. She wasn't looking for a transaction. She wasn't looking for straightforward answers to her questions. She was looking for a relationship with her father. And it's dangerous enough when we treat our relationships with one another as transactions. I think it's especially harmful when we treat God this way. On November 28th of 2010, the Buffalo Bills were playing the Pittsburgh Steelers. And Steve Johnson, he was the wide receiver for the Bills. He was throwing a pass in the end zone in overtime, and he dropped it. The Bills lost the game. And afterwards, he tweeted this. He said, I praise you 24-7, and this how you do me. You expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this, ever. Thanks, though. It's a great example of a transactional relationship with God. I've given you my worship. You know, I, I, I did the thing, and in return, you're supposed to help me out on the field. God, you didn't hold up your end of the deal. You see, the truth is that a transactional relationship, it's really just a way to control the other person, to ensure that they act the way you expect them to. I go to church, I give my money, I even volunteered to help with that class, so how could this happen to me? God is supposed to reward and bless me. Where is the justice in this? And there it is. There it is. That's what's happening in the book of Job. See, even though Job and his friends disagree on their understanding of why Job suffers, they're all operating from the same transactional understanding of who God is. All of them believe this. If you are good and wise, then God will grant you success and reward. And if you are evil and foolish, then you'll receive disaster and punishment. Both groups believe this is how it works, that if they do it right, God owes them certain things. And both operate on the assumption that their relationship with God and his justice is this predictable transaction. They just disagree on which category Job falls into, the top or the bottom. And what happens next is amazing. Because if you'll remember, we left Job sitting there wanting an answer from God, and God shows up. And he's not going to answer Job's question. It's kind of interesting about the book of Job. It sets us up for this discussion of why Job is suffering. They wrestle with it. They talk about it. At the very end, God shows up. He arrives. And he doesn't give Job an answer. Instead, God takes Job on a tour of the universe. He says, what was your favorite moment of creation, Job? Was it measuring out the mountains? Was it weaving the clouds together? Do you have a favorite song the angels sang as creation sprang to life? Did you teach the lion how to hunt? Did you give the ox its strength? Are you the one who draws a map for the lightning to follow? And as God lays out the immensity of his creation to Job, it's overwhelming. 
the world that God shows Job, it's, it's good, and it's amazing, but it's huge, and it's complex, and it's as dangerous as it is beautiful. And face to face with it all, Job realizes something. He's been operating on this assumption that he has God figured out, that God is essentially a, a cosmic Santa Claus, making a list of who's been naughty or nice and compensating them accordingly. But the truth that God shows Job is that the world is, is so big, and God is even bigger, while Job's perspective is limited. It's so limited. And God's final response to Job's question seems to be this. My relationship with you is deeper and more complex than any mere transaction. And while I cannot be controlled or manipulated, I do invite you to trust me. And neither Job nor any of his friends can argue with that. So Job repents. He repents for saying God was unjust. And there's an epilogue where God chastises Job's friends for their wrong conclusions about who he is. And listen to what God says to them in chapter 42, verse 7. He says this, he's speaking to Eliphaz and Job's friends, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. And I think we're supposed to be a little surprised by that statement. I mean, Job specifically didn't speak right about God, right? I mean, Job said God must be unjust or he must run the world in an unjust way. But it seems that although Job didn't come to correct conclusions about God on his own, God is nevertheless pleased with how Job engaged his question. And he honors Job's struggle and his honesty and his prayers and frustrations. And even though Job doesn't get an answer, it seems there was something very good about asking his question. And that's kind of, I think, where the book of Job wants us to land. Now, I'll admit, I, I felt very hesitant to talk about Job and his question of suffering. I know without a doubt there are, are people here hurting. I, I do not want to say or do anything that would be dismissive of your pain. In fact, I think... The fact that the book of Job is here, it's a testament to how serious your pain and your hurt is, something that cannot be forgotten or ignored or waved away. Instead, it deserves to be engaged and wrestled with. And for those of us who see another in pain, hopefully we can learn something from Job's friends. First, that overly simplistic answers and platitudes about how God operates aren't very helpful. And second, maybe Job's friends were at their best when they just sat there with their friend, acknowledged his pain, and wept with him. The book of Job, it's about questions, it is. It's about hard questions, the sort of questions we all wrestle and struggle with, questions we would love to have the answers to. And I don't want to minimize anyone's questions either. I have felt the pain of not understanding God and trying to reconcile my experience with who he is. And I've known the relief, too, and the joy that can accompany an answer to a hard question that's been weighing on me. But Job's message seems to be that even when you don't understand and even when the questions are too big, you can still trust God. And maybe, maybe sometimes what's best for you and best for me isn't to have the answer, but instead it's to wrestle and question and in so doing, to draw near to him. You know, maybe, maybe the girl 
The nine-year-old girl, Rosie, had it right. Do you remember what she really wanted? It wasn't the answers to her questions. It was to talk to her father. Maybe at the end of the day, what God wants most and what's actually best for us is to talk to him, to get to know our father. Maybe there are some questions where the best outcome isn't finding the answer at all, but instead it's wrestling and seeking and struggling in a way that we draw nearer to God. I've uh, spent, as as I've thought about this, I've spent some time thinking about what it must have been like for Job to, to go on this tour of the universe, what it's like to stand there and have God show you his world and creation, to get a glimpse of how big it all is, and then to realize that as enormous as it all is, the God who made it is there talking to you. And maybe he would say something like this, the world is turning around a star that turns around a center that turns around the whole of time among all the other things, the little turning animals on all the little turning worlds, and amidst it all, there is God turning to you. That's our God. He's the one who, with a whole universe to control, he knows your name, he cares about your day, he was willing to bear your pain because of his love for you, and he is always turning toward you. We're going to sing in just a moment to this God who in a universe that is more complex than we can imagine, he has turned toward you because he loves you. Today, let's love each other well. Let's try to love like he does. I want to encourage you when our time together ends, check in on someone here. Let them know they're loved. Let's stand and let's sing together.